Welcome to Breaking the Bias. This podcast is designed as a collection of conversations with sales and marketing leaders from across our industry, shining a light and sharing stories of workplace empowerment. This episode was recorded live at Marketing Vision in Boston, where I interview Kimberly Faye Boucher, MIT lecturer and social enterprise activist, and Hannah Gresty, senior editor at Momentum ITSMA. So great to have you with us. Thank you. Um, we've had a fantastic couple of days, lots of ideas, inspiration, and keen to unpack what inspires you. Uh, but before we do that, tell us a bit about your background. Great. Um, yeah, so I grew up in New Hampshire. Um, anybody from New Hampshire here? Yeah, hey, all right. Hey. Go on. <laughs> um, small town. It, it was a small town. Now it's a big town, Nashua, New Hampshire. And um, I grew up with three younger brothers and um, like a neighborhood full of boys and... Um, a, a pretty athletic background, you know, okay. that was actually something that actually has served me well um, throughout my career. So I did that. And then I went to um, WPI, Worcester Polytechnic. And for people that are um, international, it's a small engineering school, probably a couple hours from here. And so I accidentally got a basketball scholarship to go there. Otherwise, I would have never gotten in there mm. back then. So played basketball at WPI. And then I... um had a chance to uh, apply to business. I went to the GE. I worked at GE training program. I don't know if they, mm-hmm. they used to have these big training programs. And then um, got into eight, uh, Harvard Business School, which was a really fortunate circumstance because I was a horrible test taker. Mm-hmm. My SATs and my GMATs were so low that I couldn't even get a part-time MBA. And I I got rejected from every MBA school, and Harvard happened to be running a five-year experiment on no GMATs. Wow. <laughs> Good timing. I was like, yeah. what? I couldn't believe I got it. So I got in there, and that, and that kind of just... And then I went to work for big um, marketing companies like General Mills and Gillette and um, and got some great training there, and then kind of and then pivoted to startups. Okay. So I went to startup route, and then my last big job was uh, I was running global marketing at Analog Devices. You guys know Semiconductor Chip Company. Yep. And then, um, and I am now teaching entrepreneurship at MIT, which is just so I pinch myself because it's such a wonderful opportunity. Yeah. So that's Amazing. that's a short. And you're doing a huge amount of social activism. You're doing a huge amount of giving back to the community. Talk us through a bit. Sure. So, um. Back, I would say like 10 or 15 years ago, um, I had a speed bump in my career because um, I became a single mom very early on in my uh, early 30s. And I had three kids and I had one kid with a major health issue. So I had to stay home and really be vigilant with him. And the whole time I was just raring to go, I felt like my career had just been taking off and I had a successful exit from a startup. And um, I was like, what can I do? What can I do to help? Because I know I can give back. I'm fortunate I can stay home with my kids. Most single mothers can't stay home with their kids. So uh, I, my best friend and I were always running and, and say, what can we do when we, you know, a little bit when our kids are kind of out of the woods? And we said we both feel passionate about young girls and young women and giving them confidence and um, trying to get them to su- succeed. So in 2017, we started the Women's Foundation of Boston because we did all this research. And Bo- the great thing about Boston is you have so many smart people, so many people that really want to give back. The tough part about that is that there's a million nonprofits. And I don't know if you guys <laughs> have been in the nonprofit space, but like the, everybody's fighting for the next donation. And a lot of times there's so many similar um, nonprofits that do the same thing that you're really kind of trying to get that, you know, that dollar. So 
we found out that only 1.4% of all donations in Boston go to women and girls initiatives. Wow. And and of that 1.4%, 50% of that is to Wellesley College. So we were like, okay, we need to really figure out um, how to uplift young girls and women uh, initiatives and really move that dial on investment. How did you um, come to get that focus? Did, oh, you're obviously very, really passionate about women, young girls, how do you give them the opportunity? But just looking at some of the data, we've been talking a lot about data and uh, measurement and metrics over the last couple of days. How did you go about pinpointing that? Just women and girls that in general? Gap, or the gap to say, actually, this is massively underfunded. Yeah, well, I think what, I mean, we wanted to figure out, like, how are we going to be competitively different, different okay. from the rest of what was out there? And so we started looking at funding. We started looking at, do we want to be a direct service provider or do we want to be, uh, what What were our core skill sets and what could we bring to bear? And when we started looking at all the dollars, like a lot of the dollars that go to like, say someone like Big Sister, Big Brother or the Y, most of the, uh, the funding were going towards boys programs. And we were like, I wonder why that is. So we started looking into that and we really, we realized that, you know, there's so much you could do. And the other part of the research is that women, girls grow up to be moms and moms are the multiplier effect. They take, they stay with their kids and they take care of their kids and they give back to their communities. We did a lot of research on that. So it's got this major multiplier yeah. effect. So we felt like if we could, if we could even influence that a little bit, it would have a big effect, an outsized effect. Yeah. And why do you think so much funding goes towards boys' projects versus girls? What's the driver for that? You know, I don't know. I, I think there's, I mean, I, I, I definitely think we need to fund boys as well. Yeah. Definitely, especially because they have a different set of problems that they could be. But these are, we, I guess what it was was that um, it, there wasn't enough people that were fighting for it, I guess. I don't, you know, there wasn't enough representation and, there weren't a lot of women-led nonprofits too, and so a lot of it was like a per. When you start a nonprofit, it's usually something that you're passionate about, and then yeah. personal. So that's what we did. We said we're going to fight for women and girls, especially the economically disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. Most of that. Some of it we do a lot of STEM programming too. Yeah. So, um, so it's 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 across the spectrum, but yeah, economically mm-hmm. disadvantaged. Girls. Yeah. Amazing. So you must have uh, been through quite a broad experience. You must have had access. Like, you've clearly participate in, in, in a lot in the community. What's been your biggest takeaway? That you can make an impact. Like even if you, okay. even if you start something, because like, we were like, you know, we had so many people in Boston that were like, don't start another nonprofit. Please don't start another nonprofit. There's just too many out there. The, everybody's, you know, trying to, you know, scurry for those limited funding dollars. And once we started doing it, we, we definitely hit on, you know, in entrepreneurship, we call it product market fit. We hit on that because so many people wanted to join us. I mean, you should see the people coming out of the woodwork that want to help us. Really? Yeah, it's like, it's crazy. We we tell them what we do. We tell them how we drive impact and they all want to be a part of it. So it's it's good. Can you share a bit in this room of uh, what it is you do and how you drive impact? Well, first of all, we're a fundraising machine. My co-founder, Christina Gordon, I don't know if you guys know Christina, um, she kind of left the workforce early on because she had four kids, but she just is relentless about going and, and we really honed our value proposition. I mean, it's classic marketing is like, you know, what are you doing? What what do you do different than everybody else? How are you driving impact? So we we show them all the people, the grantees that we give to from Science Club for Girls to Girls Who Code to, you know, Big Sisters. 
And then we have to demonstrate impact from what they do. So it's a little bit of a stretch, but we've gotten good at telling that story. Mm. Can you share like a favorite story, a favorite um, funding project that you've worked on, like a real success story? Yeah, we had, um, I'm trying to think of, we just had our gala um, at Fenway Park like about a month ago. And there was this young girl that we financed a program on, um, I think it was more confidence building. Mm. And she was a fifth grader and she basically stood up in front of like, 300 adults and and told us why this meant so much to them and, and you know I don't know if you guys have come across this when you're mentoring or you're talking to young people but especially young girls the lack of confidence and young women and actually by the way like I would I mentor women up to their 40s and 50s and they lack confidence too and so confidence building is so huge especially when you're a woman in a in a and a room full of men and trying to communicate your idea and trying to influence or negotiate or whatever that happens to be, key negotiating and key confidence building skills are so important. And it seems so simple, but it's actually really, um, it, it's so embedded in their personality, you know, your personality as a female um, and kind of the messages that we get along the way. Yeah. What, what tactics, Hannah, have you used to build confidence? Oh my God. Put you on the spot. Uh, <laughs> being pushed into the deep end and having to come on stage in front of everyone is <laughs> yeah I don't know I think you just have to get out of your comfort zone I think gosh I don't know I, I don't think I'm a very good person to talk to because I don't feel like I have any confidence ever, at all but I think um what you say you don't have confidence I don't think so but you're here you're here on stage talking yeah I know that's why I try and pretend that nobody else is here and I'm just perfectly frustrated <laughs> I think I think it's you just have to force yourself to get out of your comfort zone Otherwise, you just end up kind of being quite stagnant. And I think as soon as you do something that makes you feel uncomfortable, you realize that there is a bit more to yourself than you probably didn't realize. Um, and also, like, everyone in this kind of community is very supportive. So making sure that you surround yourself with people that are like your hype women and, and men and not kind of get stuck into the negativity is probably, you know, my advice. But, I'm, you know, what what kind of things do you see and what kind, how do you mentor the young people that you work with versus the older people that you work with? Is there a difference? Or? Oh, that's a good question. I think um, younger people don't have as many experiences, but, you know, part of what I say if I'm coaching somebody is that, you know, you can you can do anything. And, mm. and it's crazy. It's such a simple statement, but a lot of people don't believe it, you know, in practice. Yeah, And so, you know, going for that next job or seeing a job description where you say you only, I, I only know two, I mean, I actually, at my age and where I'm at in my career, I'm interviewing for my first public board seat. I've been trying to get on boards, which is really hard, but it's the, you know, it's the time. There's, they're really pushing to get more women on boards. And my, um, and I looked at the board description and I'm like, oh, I can only, do, I, I only fulfill three of those bullet points. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, oh, no, I can't say that. That's ridiculous. I'm like, so I, I try and explain to other women, like, don't, the job descriptions are, nobody can fulfill all those things. I mean, they're outrageous now. I don't know if you guys have read job descriptions lately, but I feel like there's like 25 bullet points yeah. that you have to, who would ever apply for the job, man, man or a woman? Yeah. So, but women even less so don't believe that they can go for it. Yeah. Or even the C-suite. You know, I'm doing a lot of work right now trying to get women to the C-suite. Um, and, you know, in tech companies, there's less than 20% women on C-suites. And most of them believe that they can't do it or they're not given the plum assignments or whatever. So, you know, I'm trying, it, a lot of it is confidence-based. Yeah. 
What, what, what strategies can be used to build confidence? So, I mean, the, the job description thing you've referenced, it's been well documented that women quite often won't apply for a job because they don't feel like they've got the, the required skill set. What, yeah. what can help break through? I think they should go for stretch assignments. I think they should make it very well known that they can run a P&L if they're in a position to do that because a lot of the data suggests that women that run P&Ls and, and, you know, can prove and that a lot of a lot of men get offered more of those jobs than women do. So it's, um, you know, making it well known what your aspirations are, what you can take on, taking a stretch assignment, being willing to fail if you feel like you're going to fail, but also and also communicating exactly what you want. And you don't have to come across, you know, it, it, communication skills, as you guys know, is everything. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's, you know, how you talk to somebody and how you convince someone to do something and present your story or your own personal value proposition. Those are all key things, I think. Yeah. What yeah. about you, Alicia? How do you, you know, what kind of tactics do you have to build confidence? <laughs> uh, well, I think similarly to what you've described of just keep stretching yourself, keep pushing yourself. Um, I think unless you feel uncomfortable, you're not growing. So, I, I, yeah. And then there's just muscle, isn't there? The more you do things, the, the more confident you get. Well, I think there's a big part of just talking about jobs and applying for jobs I feel like uh, what Danny said earlier about we're all humans and everybody when you peel it all back we all go to the same supermarkets we we all do do the same things um what, what why not why wouldn't I do it versus somebody else um doing it so yeah and you know the, the mindset the other part of that is the um my male colleagues you know and I've run big organizations before and um you know I feel Sometimes I feel very badly in how um, a lot of men feel like they can't be honest and they, they're afraid, they don't know what to say that, or, you know what I mean? Like they've come, I've had a lot of conversations where they're like, I don't want to, I don't even know what words to say to, you know, to help my female colleagues, what, what's okay to say, what's not okay to say. A lot of them have daughters and yeah. wives and, you know, they, so they're super sensitive to it, but I, we can't leave them out of the equation. They, you know, they have to be, they're, they're supportive of a lot and, and they just want to know how to be supportive. So I think having an open and honest conversation with male colleagues and even the men in the C-suite, being able to sponsor women and helping women, you know, kind of bring them up is really important. Yeah. Can we talk a bit about sponsorship and allyship? I mean, it sounds like you stepped out of the corporate uh, career path and then you've, you stepped back in. Did you have support? Did you have champions? How did you get back into the corporate world when you stepped away? Yeah, that was that was super challenging, especially, I would say, when was that? Yeah, that was like in the, I would say, the early 2000s. I took a job that was probably less than I could handle just because I wanted to get back in. And it took me a while to sort of get up the learning curve because I was a little rusty after driving my minivan and matching socks and coaching, you know, all the things you do. <laughs> All the things you do when you're home with the kids. And then um, I had a woman who gave me a break to get back in. And and I look back on that and I said, she gave me a break. But actually, you know, I had I had the experience. I just had, I had been out for a while. So I was a little rusty. So I got I got up to speed pretty quickly. And um, and I actually met my client was the company Analog Devices that I work for. And the CEO was like, Kim, why don't you come work here? So he sort of sponsored me, and then I kind of went up the path at Analog, and I had 
mostly male male uh, sponsors okay. more than female because there weren't a lot of female. There was one female in the C-suite and she was a lawyer. So I sort of looked around and really tried to work like, can someone help sponsor me? And can you, you know, is there anything that I can do better that you're seeing in my, either my communication style or the career path I'm taking to like help me? Because I wanted to be in the C-suite. Yeah. You know, I really did. So what forms does sponsorship take? Like what, what can what can organizations do in order to sponsor? I assume there's many forms of a sponsorship and allyship program. You know, just some examples of what that might look like. I think it has to be uh, driven by the CEO. The CEO has to agree that they're going to have a like a formal sponsorship program so that you identify your high potential talent. And then you, so the spot, and everyone knows the difference between a sponsor and a mentor. Sponsors are people that are, you know, going to really try and, you know, work on your career going up. Mentors are co- more coaching. Um, so I think it, it has to be agreed upon. And in, at that time when I was at ADI, there wasn't a formal sponsorship. It was more informal. And so that makes it a little bit harder uh, because not everybody's agreeing on, you know, if I have a corporate sponsor, and you have, you know, identified me as someone who's a high potential. Does that mean I'm eventually going to get to the C-suite, or I have a shot at that? What that means is they're going to select me for some training too, which is super expensive to them, but they will spend that on their high potentials. So anyway, I think you know it has to be more formalized than informal to be effective. That's kind of my opinion. Yeah. The Executive's Guide to Account-Based Marketing is out now. Order your copy from Amazon or download from Audible. Have you got a few, Hannah, on um, how you've sought out mentors or sponsors that, that have been successful with you? I think I've been really lucky with every manager that I've ever had in my career. Um, they've just automatically been very maternal or paternal. And I think I often use my manager as um, like a therapist. And uh, I think it takes a bit of adjusting to each other. You have to kind of get to know each other. But I'm very much um, an open person and... If I think if I was in Danny's team, I'd probably be fired because I complain a lot. But I, I complain with good heart. <laughs> I try to improve things. I think it just, it's all about personality at the end of the day, isn't it? Like, I've just been lucky in that I've clicked with um, uh, Kate Sutherland, yeah. who works for Momentum. She's just been like the best, uh, like a friend as well as a, a, a colleague and like a real kind of supporter. And it, it, I suppose it's one of those informal sponsorship kind of things. I know that she's going to always fight my corner in whatever situation I'm in. And I know that a lot of people don't have that. So I think it's just a lot of luck. Kim, is there a way that if I don't have a sponsor or a mentor, how would I go about getting one in an mm. organisation? And what's worked where there is a formal programme? Um, I would seek out people that you admire and that you want to emulate a little bit, like especially if you're earlier in your career and um, maybe strike up a conversation with them and try and figure to just kind of be open about what your aspirations are. And just also be open about being coached because I think a lot of people um, go into it and you have this perception of how either you're perceived or what the right career path is. And um, and if you're if you can have that conversation with somebody and and, and really strengthen that relationship and, and ask them. But I've had a lot of people come up to me and say, will you be my, you know, my mentor, my sponsor um, without really knowing anything about me and not even having a conversation. So I encourage you just to sort of 
do the research and try and figure out like does that person align with where you want to go because that would be a better match i think yeah on the other side of that so how how if somebody came to you what advice do you have for the person that's kind of being thrust into that mentorship position that maybe didn't think that they would be asked how, how do you recommend that somebody would approach being a mentor as opposed to asking for a mentor know, that's a good question um i think you know it depends on the, what happens a lot of times in companies when you have the C-suite female executives, there's not many of them. I don't know how it is in your world, but like I have worked in predominantly male um, technology heavy companies. And and so the women get overwhelmed with requests. Like, like they're like, I can't even take any more. So in that case, you just have to be sensitive to sort of where they're at. And maybe like that senior woman has a couple women that work for her. That might be like a, a the next step to be. And, and if that mentor, if the mentor really wants to be a mentor, the word will get around mm-hmm. that that she has uh, mentees that that really are happy. Um, so I guess, you know, you have to be willing to spend a lot of time because and you have to be dedicated to it because I spend a lot of time mentoring. I actually find it so incredibly fulfilling as a person, you know, but I, you know, not everybody does. So. You have to sort of sort that out. Yeah, I guess it's an extra job in a way, isn't it? You have to kind of manage that workload and manage that relationship. And it's you can't kind of leave someone out on a limb or, or let them down. It's yeah. a real responsibility. Yeah, I mean, I'm, the few times that I've said I can't, I usually find them someone else who can help because I want to help uplift all. I mean, I and I also mentor a lot of men too, you know. You know so it's not just women, but like at, as I have gotten older in my career, I really see you know for me it's very fulfilling to help yeah you know yeah alicia well, what about you with mentorship experiences any kind of idols and role models i think you can grow with I've, I've found that quite interesting and actually getting to a point where you say actually this mentor isn't right for me now mm. all coming to that decision because i think sometimes you can stay in in a cycle where perhaps the mentor's got you to a certain point and you now need to think differently. I think that's um, worth being aware of. I think mentoring is a big commitment and you've got to be vested in, in it. Like I, I know I've um, mentored a few people where, where I've taken on and I haven't had the capacity to do it and it's not fair on anyone aware of it. Yeah. About the broken rut, I know you said you were a single mum and you stepped away. You obviously got back into the workforce. We're seeing with lots of change happening, you know, organisation restructures. There's a that women get penalised and they're the ones that end up leaving the workforce. Well, I I have like I did some research even before this uh, podcast. So I 35 around a lot of women start to either pare down or or leave. And a lot of it has to do with raising families and yep. a lot of a lot of pressure. But I think nowadays, especially with flexible work arrangements, um, I don't see a reason why if anybody wants to stay in the workforce, they can't. Um, it depends on your organization. Obviously, if you have a job that you have to be there, you know, 40, 50 hours a week, that might not work. But I think that I feel like especially now we have a chance to be as flexible and as understanding as possible with the needs at home. And also, you know, the other the other side of that coin, too, is, you know, especially when I was younger, a lot of my male managers out of the goodness of their heart would be like, oh, you know, you know, I, I have kids the same age as your kids and I, I see what my wife goes through. So I'm assuming that you're going through the same thing. And right. you can't make that assumption. You know? yeah. And I think um, now people are much more sensitive to that. Like if, you know, especially offering women that have three kids that still want to, you know, still want to work. 
plumb assignments and stretch assignments and not making the assumption that, you know, you know women don't want those assignments because those are the ones that actually catapult you and get you on the C-suite if that's the path you want. Yeah. Okay. And as you think, Kim, about um, women and girls progressing and you think about the C-suite, what, what, what is holding us back? You know, there's obviously a lot of progress that we have made around um, diversity, but there's still a, lot, a long way to go. Um, what, what do you think the barriers are? Well, C-suite and then, and also I can tell you more about the entrepreneurship stuff, but I would say for the C-suite, we're making progress, but it's still not, um, you know, I think where we're seeing the C-suite progress is chief legal, chief HR, even chief marketing. But when it comes to COO and CEO, those are P&L responsibilities. And P&L is really hard to get, especially in tech companies. Um, and, and that P&L starts with product management and, you know, taking on more and more roles. And that's, you know, those are the roles that females should be pushed or not pushed, but if they want those, they should try and get those. And that's kind of where I see the systemic breakdown is that um, when it comes to the CEO position, a lot of those have come from operating. I mean, they, that's that's a major generalization, but you can obviously come from the chief revenue yeah. Um, side, but like a lot of them are coming from managing major businesses and divisions. Yeah. So I, you know, I think uh, there's a push to get a lot more women in with the, a lot of those responsibilities. Yeah. And is that about creating career pathways? To yeah, get there? definitely. And getting people, to, you know, sponsors to to get you. So you let, let, you know, let her give that a shot, you know. Yeah. Um, and it, it typically comes like around that 30, yeah. 30 to 40 age range when the women are, yeah. you know, trying to, you know, really juggling all their responsibilities. Yeah. So that's what we've seen around, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes sense. You mentioned um, unconscious bias earlier, sort of touched on the topic. I was wondering how, when in your work with the younger, the younger generation, how you, do you introduce the idea of unconscious bias and like, how do you, how do you um, prepare them for tackling the workplace and knowing that they're probably going to face some form of unconscious bias or bias in their careers? Like, how do you introduce that? I, you know, it's funny. I'm so impressed. I, maybe it's because I'm exposed when I teach at MIT. I mean, my students are, first of all, they're so global. I mean, like I have Asia, you know, every single um, uh, country is represented in my class. So it's really complicated because, you know, how Asian women, Indian, European, it's, every culture is so different. I mean, I get everything from, you know, I, I had um, one of my Chinese a woman from China came up to me and said she had, she was on her team with a older Chinese uh, gentleman and he was telling her to take notes right and she was like we're in the U.S. I'm not doing that you know <laughs> and so um and so I have to be really sensitive to like you know wow I I guess I really have to understand the different cultures if I'm I'm going to do that but I you know, I don't really introduce those concepts because in terms of unconscious bias, because I really feel like we've come a long way, you know, with the young, especially younger people, there's, they just seem much more sensitive to it and more open to it. And the, the kids are more, and the students I'm around are really, really earnest. They want to solve problems. They care more about life balance than yeah. we did. Um, it's super encouraging. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, let's talk a bit about inclusivity. You know, how, how can you create environments where people feel more included? Hannah, have you found any particular environments that you've gone, yes, I really feel like I, I'm fitting in here, my voice is getting heard, 
I'm able to to be my myself. Gosh, um, well, I, th- I think it depends on your personality, though, doesn't it? Like some people feel very comfortable being open and honest, regardless of the environment they're in. And I think you are right. The younger generation, I include myself. <laughs> I think we have different ideas of what it takes to be professional, and I think maybe our standards are a bit lower. I, like, as in, I'm I'm more willing to be vulnerable and maybe not keep up the facade as much. And I I just think that that might be a generational thing, or just you know the industry that I've been in. I, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. I, th- I think it just depends on the person and who you're with. Yeah. And whether they are receptive to your openness or whether, they, you know, you can sense whether you need to back off and be a bit more professional or whatever that yeah. means. Yeah. Um, what have you experienced, Kim, inclusive environments? What what helps? It depends on the environment. Um, you know, at my last company, I think um, it was during our political election mm-hmm. and George Floyd and all these issues that were happening. So it was supercharged environment. So, you know, you I think in a smaller setting, like my direct team, like it was if I had seven or eight people, I did my best to create like a trusting environment that they felt like they could voice their opinions, especially the men, to be honest yeah. with you. You know, they felt really vulnerable about saying what they really felt. And I really tried to get them to tell us what you're thinking, right? And so on a smaller stage, I think that that's, you can kind of create that trust. When you're talking about like a big company and, and you know, it the environment is supercharged, I think that's really difficult. I think it's, you got to take it in smaller environments. Otherwise, I think your CEO and your C-suite has to really set the climate and the culture that says that you can be who you want to be. Yeah. Um, and But they have to live it. They can't just say it. And that's really challenging. I'm sure you guys see that in, yeah. in your company. Yeah. Like, People are afraid to say what they think, especially now. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. You lots, know, lots of ner- nervousness around. A lot of nervousness. Yeah. yeah. Um, Kim, great to um, unpack a little bit around D and I and the kind of broken run. And you've had an amazing, feels like, career from just startup to now lecturing at MIT. What, what would you put that success down to? It was haphazard. I don't know. <laughs> there's, there's no plan. What's, what's the learning? What can we um, take away? You know what? I said yes to everything. I'm okay. exhausted all the time, but okay. no, I mean, no, I, I just say, I literally say yes to everything. I genuinely, um, I'm very grateful for my background, which was like, you know, I was the first one to go to college, you know, and I had great parents and, and I think athletics opened up so many doors for me. So I was really lucky that I could relate to men and women. Yeah. But um, I also kept an open mind and I'm still discovering and seeing where else I can make an impact. For me, it's about like how I leave this world, yeah. you know, versus like, you know, how much I've accomplished and how much money I have and that kind of stuff doesn't matter to me anymore. But it took me a while to get there because I got seduced in my middle and my 30s and 40s into thinking, oh, my God, how, you know, how successful can I be? How much money and where are my kids going to go to college? And now I'm kind of like, none of that matters, you know, yeah. so... I don't know. That's kind of I've I've come to that conclusion at this point. So say yes to everything. Say yes. Yeah. Say say yes more. Um. And and uh, you've obviously spent a lot of time with young girls. You, you, it sounds like you're also mentoring and working with uh, older women as well. Yeah. Um, I'll put myself in that bracket. No. What What's your I'm old. You're what's like... your biggest advice? That's the kind of single piece of advice you keep going back to that you're you're, you're giving. I, you can accomplish anything that you want to. 
there's nothing you can't. And, you know, and I think what that ends up coming to is you really do become a therapist. You know, I'm not a therapist, but I feel like I could be one at this point. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, just sort of, you know, you really start to get down to the essence of people when you talk about careers. You know, yeah. you, you know, careers always comes back to you. Like, what do you want? What's in what makes you happy? You know, and, that, and that's one of the things I I give like a, a end, end of the year speech to my class. And, you know, especially MBA students are like, oh, I'm going to rip up the world. And, you know, I and I, I can tell you there's a big difference between being at MIT Sloan and being at Harvard Business School. Harvard Business School, they are very motivated by different things than they are at MIT. MIT, they want to solve really difficult problems. And I'm saying, and Harvard does too, but like they're more geared towards um, being successful and maybe being a CEO. And, you know, really, whereas at MIT, they're like, we talk about, you know, climate change and um healthcare tech. It's fascinating. I mean, I'm every every class I learn something new. And um it's, it's such great like enthusiasm that I can actually maybe one day, you know, discover a cure for cancer or maybe one day on my cell phone I'll be able to get all the things that we have to do to go to a doctor. And so it you know, they they believe they can do everything right now. As people that are might be a little bit older, you kinda at this age, you're like, oh, I don't know if I have the energy to do that anymore. But that, when they're that that young, they're like, I can do this. So I just feed that. Yeah. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. The world. Yes, you yeah. can. Amazing. What about you? Advice. Advice. Um, single piece of advice. And I think, I mean, I'm a great believer in every day. You've got to live live to the fullest and you don't know how, how, how long you have. So I'm always trying to push. I mean, restlessness is a word that often is you to describe me and my personality and it's a value that I live by. Like, let's keep pushing, keep doing better. That's what gets me up in the morning. Nice. Keeps. Are you? It's not that serious. Like, I don't know, what do you have to lose? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, yeah, yeah anyway. you're still a person and you've got a family and friends that love you. Your work is just a small portion of your personality, hopefully, and a part of your identity. So I think I try and remind myself that that it's not a big deal yeah so i think um this conference we've been talking a lot about uh, marketing strategies uh, marketing leadership and i think sometimes you can end up it can be so all-consuming that yeah. it ends up being uh, the be-all and end-all but um it's it's not not that serious isn't there's, there's life beyond the conference <laughs> um i just want to close kim on what you're most proud of what have you um as you reflect back and think everything you've accomplished, um, the impact that you've had on so many young girls, older women, what's been your biggest? Um, I broke the scoring record at basketball. (laughs) (laughs) That I'm really proud of. That was hard. Um, For girls, yeah. Well, first, my three kids, you know, just that I bought, hopefully I brought three good people into the world. Hopefully, I don't know what they're going to do, but we'll see. Um, But yeah, I mean... Yeah, I, I guess I'm proud of it. I I just kind of think it is my responsibility to do this, and I enjoy it so much. So then, you know, you know, when you get to a point where you're like, "What is my purpose?" I think I found it. Yeah, you know, so, amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It takes a long time. I mean, maybe people find it earlier. I hope you guys all do. But like, it's kind of gratifying to figure out, you know, why you're here and what you can do. Can I have a show of hands for who feels like they found their purpose? Okay, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. good. Yeah, it's really that's good. pretty good. That's very good because some people go a whole lifetime and they don't they don't figure it out. Yeah. 
I have a question coming back to the confidence thing that you said. I feel like I have three daughters, as, so I can relate to uh, to having three children that you have to try to make them be as best people that you can help them be. But I really worry between social media and COVID that people don't have to have the face-to-face interaction that you used to have, whether it was missing out on those years of school or now you're remote in your work or you can do your class online in college or whatever it is, those face-to-face interactions are much more limited or you can make them much more limited if you don't have the confidence to go out there and be face-to-face. And I think that's just such a, it's so detrimental to the confidence of young people overall, men and women. And how are you helping through your mentorship with people to kind of overcome that? That's such a great question. I mean, you know, my mentorship, first of all, I ask people to meet me in face-to-face for coffee. I just can't do Zoom anymore. You can't connect a, You can't connect with a person um, online. I mean, if I have to do it and they don't live around me, I'll, I'll do it. But I hear you. I mean, I saw it in my own kids. Like when I was home, I told you I stayed home for 10 years and I had like every kid in the neighborhood of all of my three kids. I, I must have had like, it was just a shit show of kids in my house, like <laughs> constantly. But I learned a lot. I mean... Because they were, I saw the boys too suffer from this, you know, like my own, my 28 year old son told me the other day, he was going, he works for Workday and he was going to a meeting and he, this guy, this is a kid that never admits his, anything's wrong. My youngest son tells me every single thing that's wrong. But the, the, the one in the middle, he was going, he was on his way to a customer meeting and he said, mama, I was almost going to have, I, I felt like I was having a panic attack. I haven't presented in front of anyone in like a long time and I was like wow Jack like he's like I was I was a little freaked out by it I it's a difficult thing but I'm always encouraging you got to get face to face you got to get off social media I mean I'm sure with your own kids you guys do the same thing I feel like they don't get the message until their late 20s um if that because they become busier with other things but it's a, it's a good one. I mean, I really try and promote face to face and and getting off of social media but you know what that's like it's, it's a force that we're all dealing with, you know. It's around us all. A- any other questions? One Him? quick one. This one is from left field or maybe from half court shot, we could call it. <laughs> um, some of us live in states where DEI and ESG have become dirty words. Uh, and some of us have a significant amount of business with the governments in those areas. Do you have any advice on pursuing ESG devolution in such an environment? That is such a great question. I mean, I don't know if I have an answer to that, but um, if I was in a state, like I am so lucky that I am in this. I, I live in Massachusetts. I feel very lucky. Um, and when I do travel to other states, I'm like, whoa, <laughs> oh my God. So I I think for me, I would start small, you know, and 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 try and and try and really affect it maybe grassroots level. I mean, if you can go to the top and try and, figure out what the issue is, but it's so politically charged right now. I, I, I don't even know how to, I mean, does someone else have a better answer? I, I, I'm not sure how to approach it because I would still not give up on what I believe. And maybe you can directly affect the people around you, but um, unless you can start to either lobby or get other people to, you know, think differently. But I, I hear you. I've, you know, we had this town hall, I have to tell you, that at the last company I was at, our CEO was petrified of this, but we had a town hall 
that people were able to submit. It was online because it was during COVID. They would be able to submit questions anonymously. The questions that came out blew us all. We were like, whoa, it was it was not nothing that we ever thought they would ask. And and then it, people started getting on the bandwagon about kind of like whatever politics or the way they felt about Black Lives Matter. So we found out what people really thought because it was the first time that they could submit things anonymously. And then we realized we have a we don't have a problem, but we have a major difference of opinions here. And it changed our whole communication strategy. So it had scared him because he got questions that he he was not equipped to answer. Um, so I don't know, maybe there's a way that you can take the pulse of where you're at and then try and figure out like the degree of it and then maybe put programs together to attack it. I, I don't know. What we see with a lot of clients where ESG was a big part of their proposition, it's a big part of their go-to-market, but given how politically volatile and just opinions are getting divided, it's such a tough tightrope to walk. Yeah, we, we have a couple of clients, um, uh, financial services clients, where a lot of their funding comes from organizations that are very anti-ESG, anti the whole D&I movement. Any other closing questions for Kim? I don't have a question. Well, first and foremost, congratulations. Um, I just have a, a thought of what you said. Um, and I think that one is embracing. So embracing it externally. There's always going to be groups, just as, you know, Kimberly organization here in Boston, but I'm pretty sure there's organizations, you know, Hispanics, black organizations around the town. And I know for a fact there's Hispanics organizations because we're 62 millions of them. So... Um, embracing it and just going out there and seeing what problems they have, right? And uh, I'm not saying anonymously, but have the team like also come with you. Because I think sometimes it's just reflecting that everyone has a daughter, everyone has a son, everyone has a mother, and everyone has a father, and we all have a heart. And I think that sometimes it's just having that other individual mirror themselves. Fabulous. I think that's an amazing note to end, end it on. Uh, thanks so much, Kim. Thank you, Hannah. It's been a fantastic few days. So thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Momentum ITSMA, a leading B2B growth consultancy and advisory firm. We're fortunate to have incredibly diverse talent, both in our business and the clients we work with. And together, we're actively striving to tackle the inclusion gap. You can learn more at MomentumITSMA.com.